It's my great pleasure to introduce Chef Jeff Floyd, the Chair of Parks Victoria, as our guest speaker today. Jeff's uh, an adjunct professor in the College of Business at Victoria University, and he runs a successful consulting business in the areas of strategy, governance, risk management and issue management. He's had an extensive career in areas including planning, park and environmental management, tourism and automotive services. His previous roles include CEO of Tourism Victoria and CEO of Parks Victoria. In fact, in the early days, I had many meetings with, with him regarding the Albert Park uh, Grand Prix and the impact of uh, the event on the various sporting clubs around the reserve. Uh, but he was very cooperative and supportive of the clubs. Jeff's held the role of Chair of Parks Victoria since 2017, balancing the demands of conservation, community expectations, and difficult commercial interests at times, right across our parks and waterways. He's also had to endure some fairly tight budgeting constraints uh, with the government, but I think that's freeing up a little bit at this time. Would you please welcome Jeff to address us on playing the long game, parks management challenges in Victoria. Thank you, Jeff. And Jeff will be happy to take questions at the end. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, got a bit of a hay fever going on here, so apologies for the, the throat. I'd like to start today by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land of which we're meeting today the Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation and pay my most earnest respects to their elders, both past and present. I'd also like to acknowledge Rotary. I have been a guest at Rotary over, I won't say millennia, but certainly a, a number of decades, and the work you all do and the commitment you, you make is admirable. Uh, just to stress, if I may, um, putting a bureaucratic hat on for a moment, these are my personal reflections rather than a, a formal view of uh, Parks Victoria. About 20 odd years ago, I was on a board of an organisation called the Clean Up Environmental Foundation. And it was founded by a gentleman called Ian Kiernan, great Australian, and I should acknowledge Ian because it's not long since we lost him uh, uh, to Australia. And when I came off the board, Ian gave me a book, and it was a book by a gentleman called Tim Flannery called The Future Eaters. And at the time, this was a groundbreaking uh, book, and uh, in the introduction to that book, Flannery noted Aborigines had not had any impact on Australia's flora and fauna. That's what he was taught as a child. He was also taught, and I quote, our continent is inhabited by inferior animals. The kangaroos, koalas and the like were quaint, but in a remarkable parallel with Aborigines, they were unable to cope with the competition from introduced sheep, cattle and foxes. And I quote, they would pass away in the natural course of things to make way for a new, vigorous, and somehow more fitting European Australia. Now, Flannery's view of the world changed quite a lot when he was at university, as did mine and many of us. And he began to note the impact of the Australia's first peoples, and I quote him, was enormous, and I now see virtually all of the continent's ecosystems as being man-made. Now, that might be debatable at the margins, but what is clear, to me at least, and to many recent writers, that is that European arrivals who came to the continent found highly sustainable ecosystems across Australia, and Aboriginal Australians were an integral part of these sustainable ecosystems. And the key part of their land management regime that the Aboriginal Australians used to support both their existence and their culture over many millennia was fire. 
Flannery notes that flyer, fire sorry, was the staff of life for Aborigines. In recent publications like Bill Gamage's The Biggest Estate on Earth, How Aborigines Made Australia, and a great book called Dark Emu, Aboriginal Australia and the Birth of Agriculture by a local traditional owner, Bruce Pascoe, some of you may have heard of Bruce, they further reinforce the, the notion that European arrivals arrived to a carefully managed landscape. Now, Gamage notes that at the time, European settlers didn't see this, but their records showed, and I quote, how carefully made, how unnatural was Aboriginal Australia. We now realise that European painters were for the much part accurate in their depictions of these landscapes, yet when I grew up, we were led to believe they were just seeing Australia through the prism of a Eurocentric view of the landscape. Ecological sustainability was both the law and ingrained in the culture and practice of Aboriginal Australians, and I'll leave you with this thought, they were highly, highly sophisticated land managers. Now, the arrival of Europeans brought a number of good things, but it also brought a number of introduced impacts on the Australian landscape, and including the abrupt cessation of these ancient Aboriginal land management practices, particularly the, use of, the judicious use of fire. In Victoria, like much of Australia, the priority staff of our new settlers was to clear the bush. And this had a practical economic driver, but also a cultural driver to tame the wilderness. And there's a great writer, Don Watson, some of you may know Don's writings, and he wrote in a book called The Bush Travels in the Heart of Australia only three years ago. He beautifully chronicled the campaign by settlers and blockies, as they were called, to rapidly remove the bush and reshape the land as farmland as near to the European ideal as possible. Now, fire with settlers was a big part in their approach to uh, converting uh, natural land, if you like, to farmland, but it was indiscriminate hot fire rather than the judicious use of coal fire of their Aboriginal forebears. Add to this the impacts of gold mining in Victoria and the endeavours of well-meaning people through the Victorian Acclimatisation Society which was founded in 1861 to, and I quote, to introduce, acclimatise and domesticate useful or ornamental birds, fish, insects, vegetables and other exotic species into the Victorian bush. And the result of this was the inevitable environmental devastation. Now, with only 10 years after the advent or the establishment of the Victorian Acclimatisation Society, the Victorian Legislative Assembly was told by an MP of the day, and I quote, let us alone with your new industries. You see what has come of them already. A Scot introduced their charming thistle, and we will have to put a, some on the estimates to extirpate it. Edward Wilson introduced the sparrow, and the sparrow is playing havoc with our vineyards. And some busybody introduced the rabbit, and the income of Ballarat, the whole income of Ballarat, would not save us from the consequences. Victoria's population went from 30,000 to over half a million by 1861, and a plethora of environmental problems arose. And they were known at the time. This is not from the perspective of today. They were known at the time. Soil erosion, salinity, water quality decline, growth of noxious weeds, and the extinction of many native animals, just to name a few. So at that time, in the mid-1860s to late-1860s, baby steps started to happen to protect our environmental heritage. The first country, in fact, to encircle a remarkable, important, ecologically beautiful stretch of land was the USA, with the establishment of the Yellowstone National Park in 1872. 
And just as an aside, and I do a lot of walking in England, the UK was a very late starter. The first uh, national park in the UK was in 1951. That was the peak national park. But Victoria was progressive and a fast mover, so New South Wales beat us to the punch with the Royal National Park near Sydney in 1879, but we followed very quickly with a small reserve in Ferntree Gully in 1882, and then Wilson's Promontory in Mount Buffalo, our first real national parks in 1898. So this was the start of that national park movement. The declaration of other, year, other areas followed, but no money, no resources, no organisation, and prior to World War II, they enjoyed little real protection other than a line on the map and some good wishes. Now, the Victorian National Parks Association notes in its history of the Victorian parks movement, and I quote, one of the main triggers to renewed activity in Victoria after the war was the renowned writer, editor and broadcaster Crosby Morrison. He had been concerned about environmental degradation and the state of the national parks for many years. However, a visit to Wilson's Promontory in early 1946 shocked him profoundly. The army had taken over the reservation from commando training during the war, and I might note their legacy is still there today, and combined with the effects of fires, drought, rabbits, and ongoing grazing, much of the, the promontory's vegetation and fauna had been damaged or destroyed. And Crosley noted, and uh, I think these are wonderful words at the time, he said, I quote, our first urgent need is the stock taking to find what is gone and how much is left. If we do not have a post-war new deal for the fauna and flora of Victoria, the birthright of the coming generations will have gone, and once gone, it can be replaced by neither money, nor toil, nor tears. So then the push for a statewide parks authority started in earnest, and uh, it may surprise some in this room that Henry Boldy actually set up the National Parks Authority in 1956. And why I say it may surprise you is that Bolte wasn't uh, acknowledged as a great environmentalist. In fact, he, uh, he was seen as the opposite, but he did set up the Parks Authority. Uh, and an article at the time under his name, purportedly written by Bolte, or at least one of his uh, minders, said the following. We believe that all must be made to realise that we are simply tenants using but conserving our resources in trust for those that follow after us. My government believes that the quality of the environment must be looked upon as a basic human right, not just as much as food, clothing, uh, clothing and housing. This is in the 1960s. So since that time, there was a rolling series of efforts to declare more parks and many iconic public battles between those wanting the park and those seeing that the park, decoration of the park, would take away some of their historic rights. Um, ski lodges were installed on Mount Buffalo, some might remember at the time, over fierce opposition. There was a major hotel development in the 1960s, a 300-room hotel development at Tidal River and the Prom. Uh, that got right down to approval, and then after seven years, uh, the gentleman didn't proceed. And there were big battles in the Little Desert where the government was trying to roll out even more marginal farmland to support settlers and the nascent conservation movements were opposed, and they were the big little desert battles. By 1970, the National Parks Authority was merged back into a government department. More battles and the parks estate slowly grew, and names like Hamer, Kerner, Setchers and Tian featured significantly as positive supporters of the parks movement. So it was, um, it was either side of the house in terms of Victorian state government, it was some ministers were passionate about parks, from both sides of the house and really let their name to some of the significant steps. 
Significant steps included the Grampians National Park in 1984 and the Alpine National Park in 1989. And local friends groups started to form volunteer groups, like people in this room, to get behind these parks and to look after them. And it's worth noting that many of those local friends groups are still active today. Haven't got quite the history of Rotary, but they have a very proud history of supporting the parks movement. As the battles to declare and protect our national parks were largely won, and I might note they still go on today, there are still proposed national parks at the moment that the government is considering. They're engendering just as much vociferous debates in the community as occurred 100 years ago. Uh, but the focus has started to turn to the sustainable management of these assets as distinct from putting a line around them and just protecting them. And I'll return to that theme in a the moment. But I wanted to just jump over to the, uh, the metropolitan parks. Now, I could entitle this short section of my speech Albert Park and all those other metropolitan parks <laughs> because I think about 20% of my time as Chairman of the Parks Victoria is taken up by Albert Park and that's not from Peter but uh, it's uh, uh, one of the most uh, fiercely contested spaces in central Melbourne. But it all started with an organisation called the Melbourne and Metropolitan Board of Works and it was thrown the uh, challenge by the government of the day to go and build some parks. Now, the Board of Works began to apply its immense skills, resources and political power to the question of metropolitan parks for this rapidly growing city of Melbourne. And in an interesting book, Vital Connections, The History of the Board of Works by Dingle and Rasmussen, they note, quote, in the late 60s, a new dynamism took hold of public life in Melbourne. The dawning perception was that man had fouled his nest, was mitigated by a sense that it could also be restored. The worldwide movement to make the rivers run clear and full of fish again gave Melbourne a chance to reclaim its, uh, its rivers and creeks and recapture the 1929 vision of linear parks as urban breathing spaces. In addition to that, the task of metropolitan park development fell to a gentleman called Alan Croxford, who was the then chair of the Melbourne Metropolitan Board of Works. Now, Croxford was a benign despot who effectively ran Melbourne. And I can say that with a little bit of authority. There are wonderful stories around with Alan Crocks, but I'll give you one just as a quick aside. Uh, the government at the time, uh, this was in, he was at the height of his powers, decided they'd had enough of the border works not listening to the government as the duly elected representatives of the people of Victoria. And Croxford was summoned to a meeting with Cabinet for addressing doubt. When he walked into the Victorian Cabinet Room, every member of Cabinet, including the Premier, stood up. <laughs> so the environment had this uh, cashed up, highly powerful engineering organisation who built dams extremely well and was told to go and build metropolitan parks. And Croxford did it superbly. By the mid-70s, a major program, Metropolitan Park Melt, was underway with iconic parks like Jules Park and Bringbank Park are now part of that great legacy. And when you think of the investment in those parks in terms of what we're putting into public transport at the moment, and you think of Gerald's Park at a you know, million visitors a year plus, it's a tremendous payback for the Melbourne communities. In the early 90s, the MMBW was restructured. I say we, because I was working there, we were McKinsey'd, and the Parks and Waterways Division was pulled out to become a standalone body Melbourne Parks and Waterways, and I was appointed for my sins as the head of that body. Not too long afterwards, the government of the day, the Kennett government, took a decision to merge the National Park Service with the Metropolitan Agency into a new body called Parks Victoria. 
a bit over 20 years ago. And last year I'm very pleased to report to Rotary that the passage of significant new legislation by the Andrews Government has further strengthened Parks Victoria's role as an independent major parks body and I would argue one of the top four or five bodies of its type in the world. So what are we, just quickly? We're a standalone not-for-profit with our own act. We operate under legislation but also a statement of obligations from the Minister of the Environment, the Honourable Lydia D'Ambrosio. About 300 million a year budget, including our capital spend, a thousand passionate, dedicated staff spread across Victoria, an appointed skills-based board. We operate out of 100 operating locations. We have 4 million hectares of land under management, about 18% of the state, and we manage 70% of Victoria's coastline. Our ethos is healthy parks and healthy people, and one of our core managed values is managing country together with our traditional owners. Now, we are in a long-run business, and I'm watching my time, but I'd just like to have two quick anecdotes to give you a feel for that. I've been back in the organisation two years. Many, many staff come up to me as if I left yesterday. How are you, Jeff? Haven't seen you around for a little while. <laughs> I was in the prom recently, and a ranger came up to me, and he said, hi, Jeff, we last met walking in uh, Cradle Mountain in Tasmania 24 years ago. I said, how you going, mate? He said, oh, really well, I'm still at the prom and I've spent the last 35 years on trying to relearn traditional Aboriginal burning practices, so how we can burn slow to remove the invasive tea tree as a legacy of cattle grazing, but not kill off all the other natives. He said, we started off burning too hot, we killed everything. And he said, I think after 30 odd years, we've just about nailed it. And I'm very pleased to report that subject to weather, the first ecological burn of Wilson's Prime will take place this Friday. Uh, and the science behind this and the effort and energy and the commitment over 35 years is immense. Second, thank you. Second quick anecdote was I was up in the Mallee even more recently and I'm looking out across, everyone knows the Mallee landscape, and this was an area of the National Park that was cattle 30 years ago. And he said, oh, we've re-landscaped it and I could see patches of green about this high. And I said, ah... Oh, how long do you think it'll be before we get this land back to some semblance of pre-European condition, pre-cattle condition, if you like? He said, oh, well, if the government keeps giving us the money for kangaroo control and rabbit control and the volunteers keep doing the amount of planting they do, he said, by about 70 years' time, we should be looking pretty good. It's a long-run business. What do we do? And I'll be very quick here. 45,000 built assets about 70 national state parks, 24 marine parks, 30 metropolitan parks, 60 other parks, 11,000 formerly registered Aboriginal cultural heritage places, 2,500 non-Indigenous historic places. Mount Buffalo Chalet would be one of the iconic ones. We have many of them. 200 piers and jetties, 50 visitor centres, 800 toilets to be kept clean, 500 viewing outlooks, 4,000 kilometres of roads, 1,300 pedestrian bridges, 4,000 kilometres of walking tracks, 100 boat ramps, 800 navigation aids, 20,000 volunteers on our books, 100 million visits, 100 million visits a year to our parks and growing quickly. We make a two billion contribution to the Victorian economy. We're balancing recreational use and environmental, environmental impacts. Death by selfie commercial-scale illegal firewood harvesting, threats to our staff on a daily basis, suspected theft of small reptiles being exported to Asia, new asbestos dumps two a week, 
kangaroo culling, large-scale deer, pig, rabbit, goat, cat, fox, carp, wild horse impacts and control challenges, a major increase in our staff resources to fight fires, planned burns, leading the way in organisational sustainability practices, and all of that under constant daily media scrutiny. As we all know, parks are often contested spaces, and this dynamic has been there you know, since the 60s and before, but it is certainly increasing in complexity and challenge for Parks Victoria, driven in part by social media. Our improved scientific research and understanding as to the damage to environmental values that can be caused by visitation or inappropriate usage uh, to both environmental values, I might add, and Aboriginal heritage, meets long-term established uses in our parks of people who oh, we've always used that park in that way, and growing visitation numbers. Rock climbing, mountain bike riding, feral horses in the high country are just some of the very significant management challenges that we face. Now, the policy decisions in these areas are, thankfully for me, a matter for our elected government, but you can imagine the operational challenges that we have to manage this on a day-to-day -day basis are substantial. Even with issues like illegal firewood harvesting, and we have commercial scale illegal firewood harvesting along the Murray, where the overall community is quite opposed to this, the management challenges are large. The sheer scale of our parks estate, the impacts on our staff and their families that live in local, those local communities, and the costly post of evidence gathering and uh, taking people to court and seizing assets makes for a major challenge. I might also note that a few areas of our parks are being loved to death. Think of the uh, 12 apostles on the Great Ocean Road at a busy time, or Tidal River, uh, Wilson's problem in the summer. So globally this is happening, and around the world we're seeing visitor dispersal strategies, sophisticated services pricing, the hardening of key sites, access rationing, as many other, car park, many other uh, park agencies grapple with similar challenges. One always sensitive area to me is this concern over the commercialisation of the parks. And this has been going on as long as I've been around. I'd like to put this in perspective. 300 million a year. Our total commercial revenues are about 30 million a year. And after costs, we about break even at best. That's how we attributed our costs. These include many community-based rents for surf life-saving clubs, other clubs, community activities, car parking, food and beverage, licensed tour operators, accommodation and so forth. And the driver for these activities in our parks is community support or visitor service or equity. You know, people should pay for accommodation, not the Victorian taxpayer, not raising revenues. It's never been a big part of our organisation, uh, commercialisation of any form. So in our park management today, the challenges are many and the rewards are great. We offer some of the most best jobs in Australia, and I think I might be getting my wind-up. Uh, and I'm just about to close. So in closing, I'd like to just raise three big management opportunities we have. One is working with our traditional owners. Uh, increasingly, the government has a very firm program of managing country together, recognising native title. And I can say to you, and this is a subject perhaps of a speech for someone else on another day, the personal rewards I've found for engaging with traditional owners as recently as last week in the Mallee are real hope for us and traditional owners, not only for a viable future for our park, but for sustainable jobs for traditional owners throughout Victoria. And the second key challenge is technology. Drones. I don't know much about drones, but they are transforming the park management business. 
whether it's tracking down feral species, illegal firewood, uh, mapping, you name it, drones are going to extend the capacity of our thousand people two or threefold without having to go to government cap in hand for more resources. And the last opportunity I want to raise is the one of resources. Now, uh, it's been a recurrent bleep for 30 years to me around this area and other areas of government. Just give us more money. And I've been involved with child protection in government in many areas. And in child protection, there's an equally big case, if not a greater case, just give us more money. So as smart park managers, we've been dealt with very generously by the Andrews government. But I think technology and volunteerism offer us huge potential to lever that community investment and do even more in the future. I probably ran over time. I do deeply appreciate the honour of being asked by Rotary to speak today. And thank you very much. Jeff, please stay up.